Just breathe. I don't even think I need to say anything. You know he's here. You know, I know that so many of us have even more going on than just the flood. A couple of days ago, my dad was complaining of uh, not being able to breathe very well. And finally, I ended up taking him to the emergency room and found out that his lungs were filled up with fluid and that he's suffering from congestive heart failure. He's in the hospital. And uh, just last night, before I came up for the service, I had taken my mom up there and... uh, She leaned over his hospital bed to give him a kiss, and he said to her, he said, you're still that 16-year-old black-haired beauty that I I loved from the very beginning. They've known each other a long time. And, of course, then I started bawling, and I couldn't stop. And then I texted Carrie, and then he started bawling. He goes, great, i got to go on national TV in about two minutes. But there's a lot going on in our lives. Disaster is not something new to the human race. I want you to picture in your mind a young man, strong, kneeling down beside the rubble of what used to be his home. Where is it? Is it Houston? It could be. Houston 2017, but it's not. It's Ziklag, 1015 BC. The young man is David. He's not become king yet. But he's got so much going on in his life. He's had to run from his hero, King Saul, who's become kind of schizophrenic and is out to kill him. He and 600 strong warriors have been out kind of acting as mercenaries and trying to make ends meet. And so they're in the land of the Philistines. Ziklag is a little village that Achish, the king of the Philistines, has given him and this band to live in. And... The terrorists of their day, the Amalekites, have come through as raiders and they have taken their wives and their sons and their daughters while they were out in battle. They've just taken the city and they've taken all those captive. Their families are gone and they burned the city to the ground. And so here they are. Now David's men are so bitter, they're talking of stoning him. It's got to be the worst day of David's life. What do you do? We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 30 and see what David did because I think it gives us a little bit of insight in what we need to do. You want to pull out your sermon notes? I've got a few little blanks there after some of the scriptures if you want to want to look at that. How do you survive the worst day of your life? Let's look and see what what David did. It says when David verse 3 1 Samuel 30 When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. In that little blank there, I want you to put this. We were designed to cry. God created us so that we could cry. We're the only creation on this planet that can cry because of sorrow. And God intended it to be that way. He intended for us to do it. Is that the right response? I've talked to people sometimes and say, I hope I'll get to be so spiritual one day that I don't worry about all these things and I don't cry. That's never going to happen. 
the more spiritual you get, the more you're probably going to cry. The Bible says that Jesus wept. In another place it says that he cried to the Lord. And when it says cried, it means literally cried as he prayed to be rescued from death. He felt all of that that we would feel as he was heading toward the cross. I remember as a 29-year-old pastor, little church, everybody was, I had just gotten out of seminary, they called me to my first little church and, and you know, everybody was about 80 years old. I remember in three short years, I took that little church from 120 all the way up to about 80. And, uh, you know, I, I had to get out of there because I saw I only had a couple of years of ministry left before it was down to nothing. But the thing was, we did, I did over 40 funerals as a young man in just the span of a couple of years. But I remember the first man who died in our church after I got there. He was one of the, the guys, an old man that had been in the church forever. And he was one of the pillars of the church. Good, good man. His wife, Kathleen in her 80s he died of a heart attack and she hadn't seen him yet and I was there at the hospital with her when they ushered her into the presence of his body and she just fell on his body and began to weep and as a young pastor I didn't know what to do you know and, and so I did everything wrong I remember I leaned over and I said Kathleen I said you know this is just his body he's not here he's loved Jesus and he's gone on to heaven and she turned around and almost I could Felt like she was about to pinch my cheek, you know, and go, I know, little pastor. But this is his body, and this is how I knew him, and I loved him, and I miss him. So if you'll back up a little bit, I'm going to cry now. <laughs> she was right. I learned something that day. It's good to weep. It's okay to weep. We were designed to weep. Now, some of you guys, you... You might be like me. I mean, I, I don't like to cry. I feel like I'm going to die if I cry sometimes, you know? And, and the, the same as I feel when I get sick to my stomach. I have both of those things. Neither one of those do I want to do, okay? And, and, and Laura will go, just let it out. And I go, I'm going to die if I let it out, you know? But it's good to cry. In fact, it's interesting because they did a study at St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center in Minnesota. And, and they... They tested, it was a biochemist by the name of William Frey. He found that stress-induced or sorrow-induced tears actually remove toxic substances from our body. What he did, he did a test where he used onions to make people cry and tested the tears. And then he had volunteers watch a really sad movie. And when they cried, he tested their tears. And the tears from sorrow were full of toxins. Compared to the other tears that were just caused by the natural substances. God knows what he's doing. He knows how he made us. And Frey said that crying actually truly lowers stress from getting those toxins out. An article on the emotions of Jesus by Walter Hansen is, is meaningful to me as a man. Because... He says this, I am spellbound by the intensity of Jesus' emotions. He never had a twinge of pity, but he had heartbroken compassion. He didn't just have a passing irritation, no, never. 
But terrifying anger, holy anger, yes. Not a silent tear, but groans of anguish. Not a weak smile, but ecstatic celebration. Jesus' emotions are like a mountain river cascading with clear water. My emotions are more like a muddy foam or feeble trickle. But Jesus invites us to come to him and drink. Jesus didn't deny his emotions. Now, he denied himself. He didn't always bow to his emotions, which is something that we can learn. But he always felt his emotions. What we do in our day sometimes is we let our emotions lead the way. That's not what the Bible says. But it does help us to see that we are to feel them. They are valid. And we need to understand that. And then there's going to be times, like we see in this passage, that we choose to act in spite of how we feel. But it's important to know that God intended for us to cry. But let's go on. Verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed. It's interesting, that Hebrew word, distressed. It, it's usually used for when a potter uh, presses clay into a mold. It's as if, you know, there's this David's pressed into a tight corner. David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Write this down. Focus on circumstances and get bitter. Focus on God's promises and get stronger. Focus on circumstances and get bitter. Focus on God's promises and get stronger the easiest thing in the world is to get bitter and one of the things we do we see what David's men did they started blaming David what was a an easy scapegoat because you're supposed to be our leader and and yet somehow this caught you off guard you didn't understand you didn't know that they were going to come through and do this well there was no way anyone could know but they began to blame and when they blamed they began to get bitter one of the ones we blame in the midst of especially natural disasters, is God, right? Now, I'm not here to say that I can explain God. If I could explain God, he wouldn't be God. I, I don't understand some things. There's some things that I want to ask God. Why does this person get healed of cancer and this person die of cancer? Why, why, why is this house flooded and that house not flooded right across the street? Why, what's going on with all of this and, I don't know if when we get to heaven we're going to need to still ask that or not. I don't know, but I, I'm planning on it. I can't explain all of that. But God has shown us that he's given us his son. He says, won't he freely give us all things? I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be there with you. I know you don't understand right now, but no, I love you that I'm here. That's what David did instead of blaming it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in God. Somebody said somebody needs to write a book on all the big buts in the Bible. That's one of them right there. But David, you see like everything's going wrong. Everything is going the wrong way. And David, but David right in the middle just stops. It's like that just stops. And he did something different. Than everybody else around him was doing. It's that he strengthened himself 
in the Lord. There's something really powerful about that because it shows action. That he, it's almost like pulling yourself up by your shirt and, and saying, I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord. He said things in the Psalms like, why are you in despair, O my soul? Trust in God because he's going to come through. He would like talk to himself, encourage himself, strengthen himself in the Lord. The great 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon was prone to depression like so many pastors are. One day he was riding home feeling just so down and depressed and he was reading through the scriptures and he came to the verse where God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And all of a sudden it flooded over him as a gift from God, an understanding of this. And he said, I should think it is, Lord, as he burst out laughing. His unbelief seemed so absurd to him in that moment. He said, it was as if I was a little fish being very thirsty and I was troubled about drinking the river dry and the river said, my stream is sufficient for you. Or it was as if I was a man, a little man, fearing that I would exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. But the earth saying, breathe away, little man, and fill your lungs forever. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. He said, I saw the vastness of the grace of God, sufficient. David made a conscious decision to look away from the circumstances that could be so discouraging and to look to the Lord as God. For encouragement. How do we do that? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we can do. One, you're doing this morning. We can be with God's people. The Bible says, encourage one another day after day. So that your heart doesn't get hard. And he says, some have forsaken getting together. And they've fallen away. Their hearts have gotten hard. But you're here this morning and we're here as a family this morning and we encourage each other another thing you can do is you can look to God's word 7,000 promises in his word that he wants to work in our lives and as we begin to look to his promises listen to what David said in Psalm 30 I love he wrote this he said I will exalt you Lord for you rescued me You refuse to let my enemies triumph over me. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was also prone to depression and overwhelmed with depression. He would have these bouts of depression that would last for weeks. His wife, Katie, was quite a character. He called her his little ball and chain, very affectionately. But one day, in the midst of one of his big depressions, she dressed in widow's garb, all in black. And he said, who died? And she said, I guess God must have died from the way you're acting, my dear Martin. And it caught him off guard, but he saw it in a moment. He was letting his emotions 
lead the way. Look what else we need to do. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? He said, pursue for you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue all. He didn't even know if they were alive, but God said they were alive and he was going to rescue all of them in this particular instance. Doesn't always work out that way, but this time it did. Put in the blank there, seek God's direction. Pray. Let's go to him. Verse 9, so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained, but David pursued He and 400 men, for 200 were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor, and they remained behind. These 200, these were strong guys, but they were worn out. They had gone three days straight, day and night, to get home, expecting to get home to wife and family and to find it burned, and they're gone, and it overwhelmed them so emotionally that they couldn't go on. They wanted to, but they couldn't do it. So David took 400 that could still make it. And they went on together. And they found a a little Egyptian slave boy that had been left behind to die because he is sick and had fallen behind. And so they just left him. They gave him food and water. And they asked him to show them where the Amalekites were. He said, I will if you won't kill me. And if you promise not to give me back to my master. So they promised and he led them to where they were. And it says this. When he had brought him down. Behold they were spread over all the land. Eating and drinking and dancing. Because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines. And from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from the twilight. Until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped. Except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. I want you to put, this is a a huge blank here that I want you to put in. Don't wait on a better feeling. Go into battle. Don't wait on a better feeling, go into battle. As tired as they were, as emotionally spent as they were, they had to make a determination, a firm resolve to pursue the enemy. And it's so interesting that the Bible is this interesting mix of divine involvement and human work at the same time. And they always go together. See, God could do anything that he wanted to. He could just reach down from heaven and touch your house and totally restore it. He he could have done anything that he wants to do. But you know what he ends up doing? He uses us. Why? Because he's trying to teach us something. See, I don't know if you've learned yet, but what I finally discovered as I read through the Bible and the book of Revelation, this is like boot camp for us. We're in boot camp. God is teaching us something. This is not the end all here. That's why we have this Monopoly money to play with for a little while. You know how I know it's Monopoly money? Because it just keeps getting passed on. The game keeps going and your part's done. You finished. It all goes back in the box. You go in the box. 
And then the next generation plays the game. But he's teaching us how to rule and reign. He's teaching us how to walk with him. He's teaching us what it means because that's what he said. One day you're going to sit on my throne with me. That's what he's designed humanity to be. Right next to God, the Bible says in the Psalms. Just under God. No, we're not going to be God. He will always be God. But he has made us to rule and reign with him. Why? I don't understand. But he wants us as family together with him. And he's trying to teach us how to do it. And so he lets us be his hands. Let's us be his feet. That's why he gave us the tool of prayer. It's the most mighty tool there is. As something comes from the heart of God deep into our hearts. And we give it back up to him. And he begins to accomplish it in this great cycle. Teaching us how to be overcomers. Have you ever noticed someone said... Buddha is always seated, but Jesus is always moving. I I think some of our modern Christianity has become very Buddhistic, where we just kind of sit and say, okay, God, I'm just going to sit here. You do it all. God said, hey, I want you to walk in it with me. That's how I designed it. And that's what I've been so proud of you, as you've leapt into action, community of faith, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Verse 21, when David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Beser. So here they are coming back. They've got what they were calling David's spoil. They're excited. They're coming back. You can just kind of imagine the scene as the 200 that were too tired and couldn't make it. They just couldn't make it. They wanted to, but they couldn't. They stand up and they see their wives and their sons and their daughters things from their household and they're so excited they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him then David approached them and greeted them verse 22 says then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said because they did not go with us we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered well every man can have his wife and his children that they can lead them away and depart but look what David says David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Basically, what David is saying, remember, we are a family. We're all in this together. There are going to be times when you're weak. Maybe this morning you feel like, I don't have anything left. I'm out of juice. I'm out of gas. Let your brothers and sisters gather around you. Let them carry you through. And if you're the one that's carrying... Know that one day you're going to be the one carried. Because that's just how life works. But we are a family together. We leave no one behind. We're not going to leave a single warrior behind. Just not going to do it. We're going to be here together. 
David uses the word us three times in one sentence, in one verse, when he speaks of the battles and the spoils. I wanted us just to close this service by doing tangibly three things, okay? Are you ready? And this is going to be sweet, and so don't miss this. This is the point of all of it. The culmination is now, and this is what's going to change us. First, we're going to focus on the greatness of God. The band's going to lead us in just a moment. Second, to restore you in this moment but that's what it's all about to be a family together those of us who have the resources we share and so that's what this offering is all about every penny of this offering that we're giving is going to go to help the flood victims you didn't bring a checkbook you didn't bring any cash you can give online you just go to that text and you drop down to disaster relief And you can do that even through your mobile phone. 